Hello, Kira Dyer here. Welcome to episode 12 of Loving an Addict. This podcast with my husband Duff is inspired by a great loss, our daughter Emma, who passed away from an accidental overdose. Our desire is to spread awareness, love, and hope to also help those who are striving to love the addict in their lives because we know that that person is so much more than an addict. Today we're going to talk to Micho. He's a recovering addict who dealt with some pornography and also some pretty severe drugs in young adult life. The things that stood out to me were the effects that being an athlete had on him. I feel like it gave him a lot of confidence. Most addicts have so much shame that he didn't necessarily experience that. And I believe it was because he was an athlete and that was giving him some confidence. So another push to get your kid into athletics. I also loved that it felt like God was just trying to keep putting people in his path. When it was the right time, people from church approached him, who enveloped him, who brought him in, who made him feel loved and accepted. And for him, that made all the difference. Having a Christian background as a child and then kind of seeking and wanting that when he was trying to get healthy. And then bringing it full circle with youth that he's trying to train now currently to become better and stronger athletes. And I love that full circle thing. It's so beautiful. Well, why don't you tell us about yourself? Wherever you want to start. If you want to start at the beginning. Well, first of all, we got to say thank you. Exactly. Michio. Yep. Right. <laughs> right. For, uh, for joining us. World famous trainer out of Yuba City, California. That's right. That's right. Yeah. Is that your full-time yeah. job? Well, I I work for the state for Caltrans and I've been training out of my garage for five, six years. Just giving back to the community. And then it turned into people wanting to pay me. I have almost 30 athletes in the last two years that are in college right now playing ball and I probably train about 60 to 70 kids right now and then during the summer I'm sure that'll be you know 100 plus and I was blessed by a couple of guys to get me into a facility and my wife came in and decorated and so I think it was just being blessed things come full circle when you are giving back and a part of that giving back to the kids in the community is because of the mistakes that I made growing up. Right. Right. And uh, I've always felt like that it's my calling to give back. And then the community has seen that and have shown me a lot of love, a couple of write-ups and stuff like that about what I was doing before. And, and I know that's why I got blessed with uh, this facility and people believing in me. So that's where I'm at right now. Cool. Well, that. we, we want to say thanks for coming on our show. It's very popular. Yep. He's joking. We have a line of people that want to be on the show. <laughs> lucky, but majority of the people who do watch or listen are parents of typically teenagers or young adult kids. And so we're just trying to bring as much awareness as we can to everybody. And we'd love it if you could just give us your story, if you will and go from there so again thanks for thanks for taking the time yeah no problem so i'm the youngest of seven grew up in lds church i think sometimes when you grow up in the church you take it for granted because it's just something that you do and i was living off of everybody else's experiences and testimony i'm not saying it's a bad thing i think sometimes you have to 
be surrounded by all those types of things to influence you to be a certain way. And I think that foundation ultimately is why I'm back. It's why I'm back to a place where I'm not struggling in life with uh, certain things. Well, uh, once you're an addict, you're an addict. That, that carries over into all kinds of different things. Addictive personalities, that could be like me being obsessed with training kids. I just learned how to change my obsessions. That's been my my obsessions the last three, four years. I've helped kids get into college and develop as athletes, especially in the weight room. But growing up in the church, a really good family. But in the neighborhood that I grew up in, I think that everyone makes mistakes. But I think my parents gave us a little bit too much freedom. Back then, you could, though, compared to now. Yeah. But uh, I definitely had a little too much freedom to be able to run around my neighborhood and go into whoever's houses that I wanted to. And that's where the beginning of things happened, experimenting with things, uh, being exposed to pornography. When I was probably seven years old, two neighbors that I played with regularly, one was a year older than me, one was two years older than me. The parents were gone, took me in their house and threw on a VHS tape, and there it was on the screen. And that was my first experience with it. And like I was telling you before, those images are ingrained in my mind, burned into my soul <laughs> to this day almost 40 years later. So it does tell you the effect that something like that has on a young mind and everybody takes it so lightly. Nowadays, it's just like you'd be considered, especially outside of very religious people, you're crazy if you even think it's a problem. And then being able to go into, you know, I had neighbors that sold drugs. Um, one of my neighbors looking back on it, it's like, wow, that guy was a big time drug dealer. I didn't know it at the time. You're just a kid. And like, oh, he's got nice things. And these grown men with gold around their neck. You don't think of the other one you're a kid, but looking back on it now, it's like, oh, that's kind of neighborhood I grew up in. Now, I don't want you to think that this was like a super ghetto neighborhood. It was just, that's what it was. That's my first exposure to all that stuff. I'm 10 to 12 years old, but you think it's normal because you grew up with it. So fast forwarding, 17 years old in high school, uh, my mother passed away. She had a, an aneurysm. So it was really quick. It was having uh, Sloppy Joe's one night, <laughs> and then um, she's in a coma within an hour or so, and then passes away uh, in the hospital. We kind of just dragged it along so everybody could come back and say their goodbyes. And the effect of that, looking back on it now as a grown man, obviously had an effect on how I acted maybe later, because I still went through high school, and I was dabbling in things here and there, didn't have any like addictions, but smoke weed here, here and there or whatever with friends but I still played sports and took care of business went on my mission for church and I because I'm Mormon um, but I wasn't ready to go it was just something that I did because I was expected to do that and I wish that I would have prepared myself more I never read the book of Mormon or anything like that before I went on my mission and so I regret that that stuff so I went out I was gone out for about a year came home early to have knee surgery and then literally within weeks turned from a missionary to moving out with friends and going out on the weekends and partying and drinking and being exposed to other types of drugs. So I'm sure my family saw signs and knew I was dabbling around, but I think everybody was in their own space. They're older with their kids and concentrating on their families, just hanging around the wrong people guys I grew up with my whole life. And then as you get older, there's different roads. And I took that road. And 
I started smoking weed, then using ecstasy, and then that eventually led into just trying anything. And eventually I ended up being addicted to crystal meth, and that was a very sad road, very sad road. I was probably a daily user for two and a half years straight. So people that say... Were you functioning at at all at the time, or was it pretty much... you just drug use all the time. Well, I was a member of the big uh, mortgage boom. I was involved in the mortgage industry, and I was one of those loan officers handing out those loans that lost people's houses, <laughs> negative amortization loans, stuff like that. I, I didn't know it was bad. I, I really didn't. I thought I was saving the world, getting everybody a house that I could. So I was making a lot of money. I ended up partnering up with some shady individuals and making a lot of money for them. And I was dabbling using it then. And then once I lost the mortgage company and I got swindled out of about $80,000, then I lost my house, lost the business. And then I just spiraled even worse. I was using that whole time, but right when all went down, I started becoming a daily user and then stealing from my own family type deal, doing whatever I had to do to, to get what I needed. So that's how old were you at this point? Like when all of that, um, I want to say 23. Okay. So pretty young. Yeah. Yeah. I, I was young. A lot of my friends at that time, we were all about going out, meeting girls and just partying, using drugs and basically whatever you put in front of us. It's not their fault. I can't blame them. I was part of the bad influence on other people too. So but functioning, yeah, I don't know. I don't think anybody that says that's lying to themselves. That's so when you were using, do you feel like it was all you could do to cope with your pain and your shame and inner feelings about yourself? I never correlated it and connected the lines that I was trying to cover up pain. Yeah. Never. I had a porn addiction from a young age. Maybe it wasn't like quite an addiction at a young age, but it was there. And then as you get older, drugs enhance the things that come with porn, right? So now you have a a porn addiction and a drug addiction that it's like one and the same. So it's like you're doing this for that and that for this, along with trying to meet women. So it's all a cycle that really was one and the same. It's a problem, right? For sure. But it wasn't something that was on my mind that I got to seek this. So, but it was still something that was there constantly, you know, but I feel like I had a really good childhood. <laughs> my parents loved me. My brothers and sisters all loved me, supported me, played sports my whole life, was very successful. So it's not like I was that kid that, oh man, there's something wrong with him. No, I was very outgoing, very confident, cocky even. So I think there's so many different layers and reasons and situations why people do what they do. Mm-hmm. Why some people naturally have addictive personalities, OCD or whatever it is. And if you don't channel that in the right direction into productive things, then one negative thing can turn into many. And then it does become shameful and you're hiding in the dark. So what was your rock bottom? <laughs> What forced the change? So uh, losing my business, losing my 
house. I remember my house not having any furniture and everything gone, getting ready to sell it. And not one friend friend was there just by myself. I totaled my car because I was high, hit a city bus. I lost my house, lost everything. And I was relying on other people for rides. I moved back in with my dad and was still battling on and off. And I had a friend in Southern California, my best friend growing up. He didn't know the extent of any type of addiction that I had. But <clears throat> one night he just was like, dude, you should come out here and come move out here with me. And I was like, oh, yeah, maybe I will. And at that same moment, my brother-in-law said something to me that kind of hit. And I respect him as much or more than my brothers. Big old Tongan dude, played football. And he loved me. He married my sister. I was in sixth grade. So he's like my brother. But he's like, you think you're a real man? I was like, yeah, I'm a man. And he's like, no, nah, you're not you're a real man. He honors his family, the priesthood, and uses it. And I was like, oh, man. Because the foundation I had, I knew that to be fairly true. Regardless if I was active as much as I could have or should have been when I was young, that resonated with me. And I decided, hey, you know what? I'm going to move. I talked to my sister the next night. I was like, I'm leaving. She's like, what? I was like, yeah, I'm moving. She's like, yeah, I think that's a good idea. So packed up my stuff, drove over to one of my friend's house that I used drugs with and traded <laughs> some Jordans and some stuff for one more bag of meth. And I ended up spending the night there with them getting high. One of the guys that I was with, he's like, where are you moving? And I'm like, oh, I'm moving down Southern Cali. He's like, oh, man, I got a cousin there, man. And here's his phone number. And he gave it to me. He's like, man, that way you can get some stuff when you're down there. And I'm like, like this is, I'm, I'm moving so I don't have to do that. Spent the whole night partying. Jumped in my truck the next morning. Started driving. And I'm getting high while I'm driving smoking meth. And I was like, man, what am I doing? So I had that phone number in my hand, driving down the highway, roll my window down, I tossed it out the window into the median on I-5 in the middle of nowhere. And I'm not in my right mind. I pull into the median, turn across the median, pull around, go back, and go try to find that piece of paper. It was pretty sad. And I didn't spend very long. Luckily, I still had some wit about me. I was like, this is stupid. This is why you're moving. So got back in the car and... Pulled up to my friend's apartment. Literally the moment I pull in there with my music blasting and bumping, I'm setting off car alarms. And the lady across the street is yelling at me, cussing at each other. And two sister missionaries are walking on the sidewalk. And uh, I'm like, hey, how's it going? They start talking to me. Do you heard about the church? And I'm like, <laughs> nah, I never heard about it. And just kind of messing with them. I was like, yeah, I've heard about it. So they invited me to church that weekend and I'm high. I'm like, oh gosh, whatever. I guess I'll go. <laughs> so I went and mind you, I go to church and my hair at the time is really long. I go into church and my hair's braided like in cornrows, like you would see rappers have back in the nineties. Looking for a reason not to be there. And I'm sure I just didn't look healthy in the eyes and nobody really talked to me. And I was like, this isn't the place to be. I made excuses. I left early. I was like, yeah, that's not where I need to be. Luckily, the guys I lived with, really good guys. They drink once in a while, but they're really good, just human beings. And uh, spent a couple months just rehabbing myself. 
ran out of my drugs, slept and ate for about two weeks <laughs> and uh, was able to quit smoking cigarettes. I bought a brand new pack of cigarettes. I remember being on the balcony, opening it up, fresh pack. And I was like, I don't need this. So I crumbled up, throw it away. And I start working out and I was like, I got to do something, man. So I started, luckily there was a gym, 24 hour fitness, literally a, a rock throw away. So I started working out and I'm like, man, I'm gonna go to school. So I took a couple classes at the junior college, ran into a couple of girls from, they were LDS, and I didn't know at the time, but in my voice class and um, invited me to church. And that's when it really turned around for me. I started going to church in a sober mind and just being in an environment where people were not from the streets and uh, people loved me. And I had a bishop that was freaking, he was awesome. Still talking to this day. And I made mistakes here and there going through all that, but that's what really changed me. I was able to be fortunate and lucky enough to have the opportunity just to leave my environment and pull up somewhere else where that wasn't so, that wasn't the case. And not everybody gets that opportunity. I got lucky. I got really lucky. I got lucky I threw that phone number out of the truck. I got lucky that I had the opportunity to just pull myself out of where I was and start over new. And I got lucky to meet new people who loved me and uh, accepted me. And that was how long? I was in 2006. I was probably 26 years old, I think, around then. Yeah, 26. So that's a... Part of your recovery was just moving, was getting out of your environment. Yeah, because growing up, my friends were everything to me. Even it was always about my friends. And I'm super loyal. And then when you're my friend, you're my friend. So whatever you did, I did. And I ended up picking the wrong ones and making mistakes. And that's how I ended up down that road. And that doesn't work for everybody. I was in a place where I was ready. I think it took me losing everything. That's what has to happen sometimes. You you have to lose everything to gain everything. And then uh, I don't deserve what I got now. I know that. But, man, life has been good. I still struggle. There's things that come from doing the drugs like that for luckily I wasn't 10 15 years and still got all my teeth and <laughs> pretty healthy and all that luckily I wasn't it long enough for for me that it did that to me but I've been blessed since and that's why I do what I do with youth and with the the kids that I train and I've been able to use all these examples losing my mom at a young age and I trained a couple of uh, individuals who, who went the same thing and I've been able to be there for them, talk to them about it when they weren't comfortable talking to their own parents. So I've been able to use that and then my experiences with drugs and just losing stuff and all that helped me. And I think it still continues to help me cope with, yeah, if I don't have this, I feel like I'm not whole. And I still struggle. I still have my struggles. I'm not the most active member in church. And I'm still trying to change the way that I talk, the way I say things. And it's going to be a lifelong journey for me. <laughs> well, I, first of all, I think your English is perfect. So <laughs> yep. uh, a couple questions. Oh, yeah. We tend to learn a lot by remembering like what we went through. What would you like young people to know that are struggling with addiction that literally have consumed their life? What do you want them to know about themselves? That's such a hard question that I've thought about many times. And I don't know 
if I can answer that. Because every situation is so different. When you were going through your stuff, teenage years, early 20s, were there times where you struggled feeling like you had value as a human being? No, <laughs> I, I didn't. That's why I um, say that it's hard for me to answer. You're a, you're a unique addict or previous addict. Most addicts don't believe they have value, especially when they're in the middle of it, right. which is why they continue to use. It's one of the reasons. So there's a lot of parents that are confused and worried out of their mind and don't know what to do, don't know how to help. They don't know what to say. What we learned with our experience, sometimes we said the wrong things thinking that they, they were the right things. And so what we're hoping for are either experiences or advice or suggestions where it can be helpful to people that they're right. going through this, especially families. Yeah. You know, because unless you have been down that road, you're not going to understand your kid when they go down those roads. M most of the people that have been reaching out are parents that have no idea what to do, have no idea the right way to talk to their family, the right way to support with proper boundaries. A lot of times we hear, well, you made your choice, so you're out and we're cutting you off forever until you clean up. And in most cases, that is the wrong thing to say. Now, you probably were a guy where if somebody said that to you, that would have worked. <laughs> you had a brother-in-law who said, dude, you're not a man. Right. Yeah. And that was, and that actually touched you. Right. Whereas most addicts would have been like, screw you. I don't want to see you again. You don't know me. You haven't been in my shoes. And so a lot of this is... We know that at the end of the day, the addict has to be the one. We know that. Right. But while that person is struggling to figure their stuff out for themselves, families are struggling to try and find hope through the process. They're, they're struggling trying to find the right way to somehow have a relationship, the right way to show love. That's the, one of the biggest struggles is is the right way to help and the right way to love and the right way to assist without enabling the addict, which is really tough. Right. So you're a parent right now, right? Right. And my opinion, your life is easy at this stage. At this stage. <laughs> now I know you're busy and, and you're on your toes, but, but brother, in about 10 years, you're going to be on your knees all the time, right? right? And so let's say that 10 years from now, the parent that that she has a drug addiction because of what you've experienced <clears throat> you will be able to identify in some cases and so if your daughter is anywhere near what you were what would you say to her what would you do for her i think what i've been preparing myself for is to find the earliest signs possible and it's going to be easier for me, obviously, because I've been through this, right? Yeah. But so every what, are, parent, what are those? What do you think I, those are? The, the earliest signs possible is going to be mood swings. And sometimes that's just teenagers, right? right? Yeah. But you that's can't overlook that, especially nowadays. You just cannot overlook that. Being able to have a um, relationship with your kids where it's not uncomfortable to talk about things. I think it is easier now than it was when we were younger, especially in the church. Things have loosened up a little bit. But I wouldn't say it's easier. I would say it's more common. Yes, it's so you're right. To, it's so hard to talk about sexuality. It's hard right. to talk about masturbation. It's hard to talk right. about pornography. 
Like it's not easy to talk about those things, but right. it is common. Right. I believe because I've seen a few things and experiences. I have a really good friend whose cousin committed suicide because he had sex with his girlfriend and he thought it was the end of the world. And his parents were harsh. Yeah. Very harsh. Right. Mm -hmm. And they weren't able to talk to him about it. So from a young age, our kids need to understand it's okay to make, make mistakes. Yeah. We obviously nowadays have to be able to control as much as we can control. There's uncontrollables and there's controllables. And having the communication to be able to address things in a tactful manner from a young age, being able to talk, we can't be our kids' best friends, obviously. But I feel like as soon as you see and feel something, not even that, we have to be looking for something. Yeah. Like be proactive about it, yeah. Right. So. Obviously, we're constantly talking to our kids and communicating about drugs, alcohol, porn, any addiction, food, just being able to talk about all those things openly so they're comfortable about it, masturbation, everything. We have to be able to make it so that that's not something that they are going to go and end themselves for. And I'm not talking just the physical ending of yourself, but the mental ending, the spiritual ending that leads to possibly physically ending trying to um figure that out without being crazy <laughs> with our kids because they don't understand that it's all out of love they well, just I love, I love that you said that because we have also preached that as well as it needs to be a part of dinner conversation and it needs to be in a non-shameful way right i think our generation i'm about five years older than you but i think in that generation it was well, the only way we're going to have our kids on the straight and narrow is we need to scare them and we need to put the fear and the fire and brimstone. I know their intentions were good, but I feel like because of that, there was so much shame and there was so much, ooh, I had a desire to look at this. I must be bad. I'm a horrible right. person. I'm a monster. Why would I do that? No one else is doing that. And they feel like it's something that no one else is experiencing. So I think yeah. that's really smart to be able to have those conversations and have it be a normal and healthy way to talk about all of those things that our generation never talked about and it was swept under the rug. Right. The number one thing that I can think of that would have made a difference for me 100%, because I do remember sometimes having conversations like this kind of reminds you, yes, there were shameful times. Sure. Even though I was a confident in my self-confident man, yeah, there were shameful times where I lied <laughs> to get a recommended when I was 12 or 13. And it's just like, oh, I'm not telling my bishop that. Or I'm not telling anybody that. Although I was confident, just there were shameful times, but I don't think I ever held on to that. And I think I don't have that emotional makeup to hold on to that type of stuff about myself. I know everyone's different, but being able to communicate with our kids about that at a young age in a tactful way and making them comfortable. And then when things do happen, just being able to talk to them in, yeah. in, in a way that is direct and loving. But it has to be direct and it has to be loving at the same time. They can't be scared of us because right. that's when it gets worse. If, when you're that afraid to make a mistake where the possibility of taking your life is there, it's a problem. Right. And it's different with uh, boys and girls. It's just, it's so different. I love my daughter. I'm so happy I have her, but I am so scared. <laughs> you and should I, be. <laughs> no, I am. 
<laughs> and I, I say that because I know how dangerous it is yeah. out there with everything. Boys, social media, just, just with the world. And I'm just so scared for her. So I'm going to try to do everything I can for her to know what a man is supposed to do, to how a man is supposed to treat a woman, how a man is supposed to react to a woman and communicate. There's so much pressure on a young woman. It's way more than a young man. It's, it's way more. We expect way more out of these little girls than we do out of these boys. These boys make a mistake. It's uh, whatever. These girls make a mistake. It's magnified. Mm -hmm. So uh, like that, that would be my number one thing is uh, advice is to be looking for it at a young age. The first 12, 13 years of their lives, we have to be looking for these signs. That's going to be the time that things are going to happen. We have to know where our children are and who they're with. Yeah. Uh, it happens in 10 seconds. You yeah. Know? It, and it sucks that it's like that. Yeah. And it's in their yeah. face constantly. And yeah, yeah. They, they definitely have a lot more hurdles than we used to, for sure. That's always in your face. So if you could share with us when anything comes up from your past, or if you struggle with anything currently, is your coping skills basically working out and in the community and helping these young kids? Have you ever used a 12-step program and any of those things? You no, know, I've never used a program. Um, I kind of wish I would have. I didn't think I needed it. I was healing. I was like, you know what? I don't think I need that. I'm with the people that I need to be with. I'm doing the things that I need to be doing. And I just took that into my own hands. I kind of wish I would have just to have more knowledge on how a program works. Yeah. Um, it's never too late. <laughs> that's true. No, it, it's true. And I'm, I'm sure somebody needs to hear something that maybe I have to say that could help. Yeah, them. definitely. Yeah. I, I feel I like the last one that we interviewed, she said the same thing. She changed all of her friends. And she didn't find help and solace in a 12-step program. It was like, I'm going to change everything about my life, everybody that I'm with, like you did. And I think there's value in knowing that. That should also be something that should be shouted from the rooftops for people who are struggling with addiction, because I don't think that's talked about enough. It's hard. You don't want to change your friends. You don't want to change where you live. You don't want to have that be awkward and weird. But I do think there's a lot of value in that. I think it's hardest when you're young. Right. When you're young with addiction, your friends, you think it, it's even intensified even more of how much they mean to you, at least how important you think they are to you. So I think it's even harder as a young person to just take yourself out. So that's why it's up to us to yeah. be able to find that early enough to go, hey, and whatever it is we have to do. Do you do you plan on telling your children when they're older about your history, about 100 percent? OK. Hundred percent. Uh, yeah, I mean, they're already asking about tattoos and stuff, and not that I'm against tattoos or anything like that, but um, there's a story behind almost all of them. And uh, so, eventually, when they're old enough, I'll be able to tell the stories about those tattoos, and then that will lead into the stories of the mistakes that I've made. They know my daughter; she knows that daddy's made some mistakes in the past. Not to what extent; she's still a little too young to um, talk about that. But when she's old enough, I'm, I definitely want them to know. I want them to know because I want them to know. I'm going to know when you're messing up. I see it with the kids that I train. I know when something's up. Yeah. I'm not stupid. I'll pull yeah. you aside and be like, what are you doing, man? How much have you been smoking? If I think it, I'm going to say it because somebody has to. 
you have to catch it early enough to where you can make a difference in it. And you have to have the relationship with them first. That they, especially when they're not your kids, they have to know I love them, and they do. So it's easier for me to do that. And sometimes it is a safe space for them. So being able to have your kids around, obviously, good peers, and if they're playing sports or whatever that is, around some of mentors or adults who like, but the. And I'm not saying that I'm the best mentor around, but to have someone like me who I love my, I love everyone I train. So I want them to, you know, I hope my kids have somebody like me that uh, outside of me and my wife that they can talk to about things and, and then be just real with them. Like, hey, you're messing up. That's stupid. But they know that person loves them and has experienced things. And I'm, I'm hoping I can be that for my kids. Yeah. But sometimes it has to come from somewhere else. So if you do have a kid who's struggling and you don't know what to do, you got to find someone like me. You got to. Kind of like your brother-in-law. So right. even though he's family, he's not blood, right? right? There's a different relationship there. Yeah. And you had love for each other. Like you're saying, I think that's a really big deal. You respected him. So when he was able to call you out, right. you know. That. you listened yeah yeah right. yeah i think maybe i would say maybe we'll we wait too long to find someone that because we as parents i already know i'm going to be thinking i can do it myself i can i can save my kid myself we can do this and maybe yeah. there needs to be intervention earlier with somebody that you can trust that with somebody that who's been through it and i know that's hard to find someone like that but i really think that would help I mean, not mentors. Yeah. Right. I remember getting that advice when my girls were young that not necessarily someone who's been through hard things, but just having someone who's older that's not you that that child can connect with. And maybe that's where it starts just having somebody that they can connect with outside of mom and dad. And they have a relationship with them to be like, hey, this is what I'm dealing with. Or that adult saying, this is what I'm seeing in you. And this is a change I'm seeing. But yeah, I think that's really smart. Yeah, I, there's got to be all different avenues to be able to attempt and exhaust. And even then, even then, we might be able to find everything perfect and it still might not be enough. Yeah, yeah. Un unfortunate. Well, I think there's value in your story as well in that you can say, this is where I was and this is where I am now. And I think that's huge for any kid, regardless of what it is that they're struggling with, that they can see it's possible to make changes. It's possible to be on such a dark, hard road and then to be where you are now in supporting a family and having a family. And, Mentoring you know, other kids. Exactly. Making know. such positive changes. I yeah. think that there's huge value in that. Right. We attack it at every angle that we possibly can. And that's going to be with counseling for some family counseling, mom and dad counseling. I have kids that I train that their dad can tell them the same exact thing that I'm going to tell them, but it will mean nothing. But they come here and they see the banners on the wall and these kids that are playing division one football and softball, whatever, they see all that. And they think I know what I'm talking about. So I say the same exact word your dad did four weeks ago and it's going to hit home because it's not your dad or your mom. We need more resources like that. And it, and it can't just be through the church or through the 12-step program. It's just got to be such a broad range of uh, resource 
that we can reach out to and be like, hey, I think you can help my kid or I'm hoping you can. Let's give it a shot. Yeah, I think for us, we know that it's really important to get to the source, especially, well, we only know girls. That's all we have. But I think it's really important to find out why there is drug use, why there's pornography use, because so many times that's a coping mechanism for something deeper. And the kids can say, I don't know, I don't know, I don't know. When we know that if there's maybe an emphasis on trauma therapy to really get to the source, because otherwise it's just a band-aid over and over. Those 12-step programs will be a band-aid. Those mentors will be a band-aid until you say, okay, let's get to the very, very beginning of why this began in the first place. You can never walk away 100%. You just can't. As soon as you do that, I would say the success rate drops significantly. Are you talking as a parent or as an addict? As a parent. Yeah. And as an addict. If my family would have just disowned me and never open their doors to me ever again yeah I don't know I can't say I was fortunate enough that didn't happen and I still had a place to go when I lost everything so I can confidently say that that helped obviously you can't enable there comes to a point where you got to cut certain things off and you can't let it ruin your marriage and your other kids so if it is to that point then there has to be boundaries obviously but you got to be able to find out a way to communicate that. That being said, I'm here for you. Whatever you need, let's do it. Don't ever close the door. Well, there's no easy. None of this is easy. No. Right, right. Cutting somebody off is not easy. Setting boundaries. Setting boundaries isn't easy. Yeah. Enabling isn't easy. Not right. enabling. It's all hard, right? Yeah. Right. But being able to set those loving boundaries is what I like to call them. Our daughter when it when she had her setbacks not her relapses but we call them setbacks she knew she couldn't stay the night but she could come have a meal anytime she could come do laundry anytime she could come hang out anytime but that was one of the loving boundaries we set which kept the rest of the family safer and um, a little bit more harmonious but it's hard none of it's easy it's all hard so I think that's a fair, loving boundary. There's probably going to be people listening to you. And even if it's just one, I realize that's the kind of boundary I should have set. The whole idea is, and you said this before, what worked for you probably isn't going to work for most. What didn't work for you might work for some. And it's about trial and error as you're navigating the waters. And so I think it's important that families understand that it's a journey for everybody. And you have to always be adapting and figuring out what actually works for that family and that person and and what doesn't. But ultimately, it's about removing any type of conditional love, if you know what I mean by that. And conditional love is not enabling. It isn't. It's making sure that that person knows that even when they're making certain choices and having certain struggles, it doesn't remove the love at all. It doesn't determine how much love. And I think there's a lot of parents and families that struggle with that. And it's important for parents that are listening, that comes from fear themselves, right? right? So afraid of the drastic results, right? We're usually really, really scared of what potentially could become. Yeah. So there, 
I think another thing that as parents, we forget. So we spend all this time trying to build this foundation for our kids to be able to always come back and hopefully it's strong enough that they can overcome things. And we forget that sometimes we have to tear those foundations down and rebuild them. But it's just like, you have to rebuild sometimes. And then that's going to be uncomfortable. And sometimes it's going to not feel good to realize that maybe we made mistakes as parents, or maybe we didn't. And it doesn't matter. It doesn't right. matter. Yeah. Right. That's All we the key have right there. That's the right. key. Yeah. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter where they end. It doesn't matter right. where they begin. Yeah. Right. Exactly. But be, being able to find a way to rebuild a foundation that might not look like what you thought it was going to look like or feel like what you thought it was going to feel like. You have to find the way to rebuild the foundation. I believe that everybody has it in them to change. Mm -hmm. It's crazy because people don't change. People don't, once a cheater, always a cheater, this, this, and that, and the other. You know what? It's not true. It's just not true. We're always, we're ever changing. In the gospel, we know that for sure. But in general, in, in life, we are ever changing. So we have to be able to change with our kids as they get older too and rebuild foundations, even though we may have built the best one. We did everything right. It doesn't matter. One of my biggest pieces of advice is to understand it doesn't matter. Whatever happened, it does not matter. And we cannot harp on what we did wrong or what we did right. And we have to figure out how we are going to rebuild a foundation that's strong enough for them to come back to when they are ready to because sometimes there's nothing we can do there's hard-headed individuals out there and the reason why they are who knows but usually they're the strongest people ex-drug addicts are some of the most dedicated hard-working people you'll ever meet and they love hard and they hurt hard so we have to understand that usually they're very smart hard-working individuals and love really really hard and so to be able to use that to our advantage to help rebuild foundations and move forward. Yeah. I love that. I do too. Well, we really appreciate you taking time because like you said, it could just be one person that you might be helping. And that's amazing. And that's always been our mindset with this. And we don't know how many people we are actually reaching because not everybody is going to comment or come to us, but we do think there's value in telling your story and what you learned and what you gained and I think that's amazing. Everything that you have been through, there's a lot of value there. I appreciate you guys talking to me because even though I've overcome a lot of things and whatnot, every time you revisit something, you learn something and it just helps. I'm always going to be an addict, right? That's what they say. <laughs> I I don't look at it like that. I'm always going to be overcoming thoughts, temptations, and and things in my life. life. I would rather use something like that as opposed to I'm always an addict. But that being said, it's good to revisit, to learn new things of why maybe I was how I was and why I did what I did growing up, right? Because you forget until you talk about it. Sometimes you forget. So I appreciate that. Good. That's good. Well, we always like to end our podcast on there is always, always hope. And there's always, always hope. We believe that. No matter what. Yeah. Yeah. All right. You guys have a great hey, night. Nice hey, talking you to you. Too. Appreciate right. your time, dude. Yeah. yeah now, thank you so much. now get in there and go get swole. All right. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> all right, guys. I did want to clarify a few things about seeing signs in your teenager. For us, we did see some extreme mood changes with Emma. 
We also saw her go from straight A's in school to failing some classes. There's also a change in friends, also a change in things that they used to like that they no longer like. Those are some of the really big red flags that you might see in your teenager. And as Micha was saying, sometimes that's just a teenager being a teenager. Some of those things, like mood changes. But trust your gut. We as parents know we have this barometer with our children. If you're questioning, then something's probably up. The best way to go about that is to assure your child over and over. I feel like something is different. I feel like something has changed with you. Is there something going on that we can help you with? Assure them they're not going to be in trouble for seeking help. I think often that's where teenagers get stuck. They're like, if I tell my parents what I've been doing, I'm going to be in big trouble. But seeking help because there's an addiction or there's been a trauma that the parents don't know about or they have viewed something that's frightening, like in Emma's case, as an 11-year-old, you wouldn't think you'd need to talk to your kid that young, but talk to your kids. If they see something, if they feel something, if they hear something that's alarming, ask them to come to you. And as they're older, it's normal. It's just so normal for the teenagers not to want to talk to the parents. Don't take offense to that. Assure them there's help. If you don't want to talk to me, please talk to the therapist or please talk to grandma and grandpa or an aunt and uncle or another trusted adult or another trusted healthy friend. Let them know that there are options out there, that this isn't something they just have to sit with and figure out on their own. I think that will be really helpful for most kids to be able to have that invitation to, look, there's no repercussions. I just love you so much. I'm wanting you to seek help because I, these are the changes that I'm seeing in you and I'm worried about it. Please remember to like, share, or comment, add a thumbs up on YouTube. All of these things will help us reach people in need of hearing this podcast. And as always, we want to take you out on a recording of Emma singing and playing the piano with a message that we believe she would want you to hear.